The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I remember the first time that I thought my life was over. Uh, I was in kindergarten, that's right, K-5, and I got into an argument with this uh, little girl in my class, and I remember, I don't remember what we were arguing about, but I remember trying to make a point by pointing my finger at her, and, and when I did that, she bit my finger. Naturally, as a five-year-old, I cried. I felt embarrassed in front of all of my friends because this situation obviously made me look very Weak, and then things got worse. Our teacher sent us to the principal's office. Now, I don't know what you were told in your home growing up, but when my family talked about being sent to the principal's office, it sounded like being sentenced to death row. That's because I had a good mama. Happy Mother's Day. I'm also married to a good mama. Happy Mother's Day to you as well, because both of them put the fear of God in their children. And I had that fear about the principal's office. Thus, my life was over. And I remember, I remember like as I walked into that office, it just came across as this place of, of power with its big brass nameplate on the door, the huge desk, the adult-sized furniture. Remember this K5? We didn't know what adult-sized furniture was. And I, I remember at that point, it was not just my suffering situation of my bitten finger that made me feel weak. No, at that point, it was my struggling sense of self. Now, who was I in the presence of this principle so great and powerful? Never mind you, my principle was like an 80-year-old woman, but that's beside the point. I was suffering. I was struggling. I was weak. And while that story is silly, no doubt, I wonder like, have you ever felt this way? So many churches, so many churches have lost sight of, of loving Christ and spend their time being torn apart by divisions and false teachings. So many churches have lost their witness for Christ because they justified indulging the same lifestyle as the world, a relentless pursuit of money and sex and power and politics. There are many churches that may continue to operate as a church, but they have become spiritually dead. Useless. Perhaps you have even been wounded amidst such struggles in a church. We're not immune. It shades. We have our own set of junk and struggles and dysfunction. Perhaps you've even been wounded here and you've been left asking, where is Christ the conqueror amidst the struggles of his church? Reveal that for me, Revelation. Where, where is the Jesus you claim to unveil? Sure, Revelation promises that one day he is coming on the clouds, but where is he now? That's our question this morning. And this is precisely where Revelation begins. 
with the revelation, the unveiling of Christ right now, as he is right now, in this moment, Shades, because the revelation, this is a book for right now. It, it is meant to give you courage. It is meant to bring clarity to your life and your calling. It is meant to challenge you when you are tempted to sin. It's meant to comfort you amidst suffering. It's meant to empower you to conquer right now. And so it begins by unveiling the one who has conquered. Let's, let's see. We need to see him in the now. And we aren't the only ones. Let's begin reading together. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, that's flipsis, it just means in the persecution and the opposition, in the midst of my sufferings. Your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There's, there's three sections to this passage we're going to go through this morning. And the first one is verses 9 through 11. And each of these sections has something for us. This first section has something we need to hear. Something we need to hear. Number one, Shades, hear the earthly reality. We've already been talking about it. But let's, let's hear it here from the word. Let's hear why it is that we feel like Christ is not present and powerful. I bet that they in the first century felt something similar. We'll hear it when we hear the earthly reality. So right here, our author introduces himself, and he introduces the reality of a situation. Who's our author? John. That's it. No other titles. No other qualifications. I mean, he says he's their brother and partner, but those aren't titles. Those are relationships. There's only one John that I know of in the first century that was well known enough in the church to simply introduce himself by such a common name. That's John the Apostle, one of Jesus' original disciples. He wrote the Gospel of John and he wrote three letters that we creatively call 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So we've got John and he tells us about his situation. It's a suffering situation. John, your brother and partner in the tribulation the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He's in a situation of tribulation that requires patient endurance. Yes, he does also say something about the kingdom right here, and it's confusing. How can those things coincide, the kingdom with tribulation? How does that go together? We'll come back to that, but right now, simply see he's suffering. And he tells us how and why he's suffering. He says that he's on the island of Patmos uh, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos is a small island. It's, it's uh, very mountainous and rocky. It's about 40 miles off the coast of Asia Minor. That's modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's, its closest city really is probably Ephesus, it's, which Ephesus is about 65 miles away as the crow flies. Uh, but it was not uncommon for the Roman Empire to use this place, this island, Patmos, uh, as, as a place to send political prisoners in exile. John had been exiled there. He was separated from his community. I mean, you want to talk about like social distancing, right? You talk about quarantine. John was cut off from those that he loved distant 
alone can anyone identify with this kind of suffering at this moment. He was in a suffering situation. And he had to be, he had to be struggling. I mean, even if not emotionally, at least physically. John's an old man by this time. The, the early church father, Irenaeus, Irenaeus was discipled by a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was discipled by John. So Irenaeus is only a generation away from John right here. And Irenaeus tells us the Apostle John wrote the Revelation near the end of the reign of the Emperor Domitian. So we're talking about 95 A.D. John has to be in his 70s, more likely his his 80s, which in the first century is really pushing it. And yet this old man, in his suffering and struggling situation, has not quit worshiping Jesus. Look Look at verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. John was in the Spirit. That's one of the ways in his gospel that, he, that Jesus told us to worship. We worship in spirit and in truth. John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's on Sunday. The early Christians started calling it the Lord's day because it was the day they gathered to celebrate the Lord's table. So we celebrate the Lord's table on the Lord's day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And even though on this Lord's day, John cannot gather in the flesh with his brothers and sisters, he can worship with them in spirit. Anybody identify with what this feels like? And amidst his worshiping, he hears something. He hears it. A voice, like a, a trumpet. Don't think brass trumpet. This is a shofar. It's a ram's horn. It, it blasts loud and clear. You cannot miss it. I remember several years ago here at Shades Valley, right in the middle of worship, bands playing, we're singing, and someone at the back of the room, young man, blasts a shofar. Like, you knew it. I mean, it makes sense that he would do that, right? It's, it's Shades. It's no big deal if a shofar blasts in the middle of worship. But that's, that's not the point. The point is that it didn't matter how loud the band was playing or how loud we were all singing. You could not miss that trumpet blast. And John doesn't miss this trumpet-like voice. And this is what he hears, verse 11. Write what you see in a book, in a scroll, and send it to the seven churches. And he names these churches the way that this letter would have traveled around Asia Minor. You can look at it on a map, and this is the way you would go geographically. You'd come inshore 65 miles to Ephesus, and then you'd make a circle. To Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. This this man who is in a suffering, struggling situation is told to write to seven Suffering, struggling churches. I I can only imagine how taxing of a call this was on this man's life. Shades, can I be honest and vulnerable with you for a moment right here? I've been preaching to an iPhone for several weeks now. It's no fun. I don't like it at all. And I know that this is not the ancient equivalent of live streaming right here. But this man who is isolated from his congregations 
is called to still minister to them. It has to be taxing upon him. Suffering, struggling man called to write to these seven suffering, struggling churches. I can say that because over the next seven weeks, we are going to get intimately acquainted with the suffering and struggling of these churches. John is already intimately acquainted with it, but we are going to see that some of them have lost their first love. Others are are persecuted and impoverished. Others have given in to false teaching and to tempting sinful pleasures. Others are basically, for all intents and purposes, spiritually dead. Uh, There are some who are physically weak with not much strength left at all and some who have become completely useless. The point is, all of these churches are either suffering or struggling or both. And not just them. All churches experience this, don't they? And this is why John writes specifically to seven churches. Do you remember from last week we talked about how the Revelation uses numbers symbolically all the time, and the one we're going to run into the most is this number, seven. It's a number that stands for completeness, for totality. John writes to seven very real churches in Asia Minor, but he also does so as a sign, a symbol, or a a, a signal that he is writing to the complete church throughout the world to the total church throughout time. In other words, Shades, he's writing to us. We who who can identify all too well with these suffering churches, we who share in the struggles of these churches, we who wonder where is Christ the conqueror when, when all we can see is our suffering and our struggling. John is writing to them and to us so that we might see a deeper reality. Oh, we hear, Shades, we hear loud and clear the earthly reality that's been described right here. We we resonate with the situation that John and these seven churches are in. But this passage does not merely describe an earthly reality for us to hear. Remember, John heard that doesn't just describe an earthly reality for us to hear. No, it also reveals a heavenly reality for us to see. We've heard all about the earthly reality, a situation of suffering and struggling that makes it difficult for us to see Christ present at all. Now the second section of our passage has something for us to see. Number two, see the heavenly reality. Heard the earthly reality? See the heavenly reality. Verse 12 Then I turned to see. He heard, now he turns to see. We're going to see that a lot in Revelation. Hear, and then I turned to see. I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. That voice that sounded like a shofar blast that made John turn around. If you were here the day the shofar blasted in the back of Shade Sanctuary, the exact same thing happened that day. When it blew, all of us, every last one of us, our heads are like, where, like it's just an automatic reaction. Every one of us turned around to see the source of the sound. And, and we are prepared, we've been prepared by what we've read already. We've been prepared for who we think John is about to see. We've been prepared because we've been told, one, he's in the spirit. That's a common phrase in the prophets, especially in Ezekiel when they're about to get a heavenly vision. And we're prepared because we've been told the voice sounds like a trumpet. That's precisely what Moses and the people of God heard in Exodus 19 before Moses went up Mount Sinai in order to encounter God and hear his voice. Like We've been prepared 
for John to turn around and see God. Which is why what he sees is a bit surprising. Before he sees a who, he sees a what. Look at it. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. We're expecting a who when we get a what. We get seven whats. Seven golden lampstands. Why is this the first thing that John sees? I mean, I know, we know from the Old Testament that in the tabernacle, there was a, a golden lampstand with seven branches. And this, this is kind of like that, but here we've actually got seven individual lampstands. Why? Per- perhaps they're simply telling us something, signaling something to us about the person that we're going to see in their midst. Because we know in the, in the Old Testament, the one who worked in the tabernacle in the light of the lampstand would be a priest. And yeah, I mean, that is precisely what we see here. Look at it again, into verse 12. I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like the high priest. John sees, amidst priestly lampstands, one dressed just like the high priest. And it's not just anyone. John says it is one like a son of man. That's just very specific wording. That's a specific title that John is drawing from Daniel. We know from last week, and we're going to see all throughout the Revelation, John draws on Daniel a lot. And from Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 is where this title comes from. There we're told about one like a son of man who comes on the clouds to the ancient of days to God himself in order to receive a kingdom made up of people from all nations. We can see very clearly Jesus is the son of man. As a matter of fact, that was one of Jesus' favorite titles for himself when he walked the earth. He's the son of man who as the perfect high priest sacrificed his own life to purchase for himself a kingdom of people from all nations. John is seeing Jesus. Which is a little surprising as what we thought John was going to be seeing was the Ancient of Days himself. God, King, Rule the Ancient of Days sits on a throne, enthroned as king, ruling over everything. But I guess Jesus, our great high priest, will just have to do. Shave. Buckle up. Because John's description isn't through. Verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. Hold up now. Like that's Daniel 7 language again. But those are not words that Daniel uses to describe the Son of Man who receives a kingdom from the ancient of days made up of all people from all tribes and languages and tongues. No, Daniel 7 and verse 9 says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. The Ancient of Days, seated on his kingly throne. He, God himself, has hair like white wool. 
But John, in Revelation, sees the Son of Man, Jesus, with hair that's just the same. And that's because John is saying Jesus is the Ancient of Days. Here is the heavenly reality that we need to see. Jesus is God. Yes, He is the Son of Man, our great high priest, and He is also the Ancient of Days, the King of Kings. He is high priest and He is King. He is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And John is getting a glimpse of His unveiled glory. And shades. I don't know if you've ever seen the last scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark that melts people's faces off, but that's what it feels like is about to happen when you keep reading this description. This is no Jesus meek and mild, patting kids on the head, wandering around the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus, ancient of days, in full, unveiled glory. Look at verse, verse, the end of verse 14. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. All of this is light-emitting imagery, glowing imagery, glory-emitting imagery. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And in his right hand, that's his hand of power, his hand of sovereignty, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. That's enough to kill you. It nearly does, John. Most of this language right here, it comes from Daniel chapter 10. When Daniel encounters a a heavenly man who speaks, he looks a lot like this, and he speaks a prophetic word of judgment against those who have been persecuting the people of God. And that's the imagery right here. An imagery of judgment. Shades, remember, this is apocalyptic, highly symbolic literature. John is not trying to give us a physical description of what Jesus looks like. That would be terrifying, which probably is terrifying anyway. But but if you notice, he's, he's not giving us a physical description of what Jesus looks like. He's giving us a description of who Jesus is. And he is taking all of this Old Testament imagery, God is taking it, John is taking it, and weaving it together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for John to get a glimpse of what Jesus and his unveiled glory has looked like, looks like. He mixes metaphors all over the place. We don't like that in English. Apocalyptic literature does it like crazy. Get used to it. In other words, he has a sword coming out of his mouth, but he speaks with clarity. You couldn't do that if you literally had a sword. His face is shining like the sun in full strength, and yet John can somehow still gaze upon it. There's a mix of metaphors here, because this isn't designed to tell us what Jesus looks like, but who Jesus is. And the imagery has told us he is priest, he is king, and here we get he is the prophet that can speak the word of judgment. Flaming eyes of sovereign sight that search all hearts and minds, bronze feet of stability and strength, swift to carry out justice, a powerful voice like roaring waters whose judgments cannot be ignored, and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword, his prophetic word that will win the war of truth. Behold the glory of Jesus Christ, God himself, prophet, priest, and Do you see the heavenly reality of who Jesus is right now? If you do, you can scarcely look. 
for his face is shining like the sun in full strength. You want to know what it's like to try to look at Jesus? Try looking at the sun. Don't, don't do that. Don't really do that. That's a disclaimer. No one should try that. But that's the comparison here. Now, we need to pause for a moment right here because as we've just kind of walked through this symbolism and imagery of Jesus, I, I, I think that right here we are encountering one of the common traps that people fall into, that we fall into, when it comes to interpreting the book of Revelation. Here's what I mean. We encounter a passage like this, and it's easy to get caught up in the details of the symbolism. What, is, what does the long robe mean? He's got a robe all the way to his feet. Is that a symbol of status? Some commentators say so. Others don't. And, and the white White hair, like that's got to be like purity or wisdom. I mean, the Bible talks about white hair being wisdom, so that's got to be what that is. Some, some commentators think so, some don't. And the, the bronze feet, like that's got to indicate strength. Jonathan, you said it indicates strength and on and on. And we think that this is the way to understanding revelation. It's like, it's like a code. We just got to decrypt it. Like if we can, if we just figure out what all the symbols mean, then we can get this thing. But, but I fear that may be the very method for missing it. You see, some of these symbols, we know what they mean because John or an angel in the vision will tell us explicitly some of them we know what they mean because their Old Testament reference is really painfully obvious. There are many, many symbols that scholars disagree on. You can find all sorts of ideas about what the long robe means, the white hair, the bronze feet, as well as many other details in this vision. I fear that if nailing down what all the symbols means, that if that's the way to understand Revelation, we will never understand a thing. Revelation does not offer that kind of of clarity. I told you last week that Revelation, when we study, it's going to give us clarity. That's not what I meant. That we will walk away from this thing, all the details and symbols solved. Got it. No, Revelation doesn't offer that kind of clarity. It's not trying to teach you music theory. Like, Like music theory, like breaks down all the technical components of, of music. It explains music. Most of us don't care. <laughs> I, got, I got Matt Watson sitting here, and he, he knows, because he knows music theory very well, and he knows most people don't care. Uh, most people don't care to have music explained. We just want to experience it. We don't have to understand every technical component of our favorite song in order to sing along and revelation is not aiming to teach you musical theory it's aiming to teach you to sing it's aiming to teach you the song of the universe its ultimate aim is not to explain everything but for you to experience the unveiling of your king that is the clarity that revelation 
brings. When I told you that this book brings clarity, clarity, I didn't mean, and all the details, we'll walk, around, we'll walk away with all that tied up in a nice little bow and all our T's crossed and I's dotted. I don't even think that's the point. What I mean is that this book gives clarity to who God is, to who we are as his people. It gives clarity to how God sees the world in which we live, the systems that we live under and is a part of. It gives us clarity on who God has called us to be in this world. This book gives clarity for us to join in the gospel song of our King. And right here, when you hear the melody that John is playing for us, he's He's taken all of these Old Testament images and put them together in a new way. Like someone playing the same old 88 keys on a piano that you've heard a million times, but they put them together in a new song and it captures your heart and captivates your imagination. John plays us a new tune. No new notes, but a new tune to help us see that Jesus is God, our prophet, priest, and king. And when you hear it, does it make your heart want to sing? If it doesn't, you're not seeing what's being unveiled. Look at what it does to the heart of John. This is one who knew Jesus, walked with Him, lived with Him. If anybody's used to Jesus, it's John. And when he encounters the unveiled glory of Jesus, what happens? Verse 17. When I saw Him, I fell at His feet as though dead common throughout scripture daniel does this isaiah does this peter does this paul does this we do this but there's good news i fell at his feet as though dead but glorious gospel conjunction but he laid his right hand the hand of his power his sovereignty he laid his right hand on me saying fear not Fear not, John. Believe that. Believe that word coming from me. Fear not. He's going to give him a lot of reasons he doesn't have to fear. But what we need to see right here is that John has heard the earthly reality that surrounds him and keeps him from seeing who Jesus is, a reality of suffering and struggling. But now he has seen the heaven reality of who Jesus actually is in this moment right now, and now he's going to be commanded to believe something. In our third and final section, we don't get something to hear, we don't get something to see, we get something to believe. Number three, believe the mystery is reality. You've heard the earth reality, seen the heavenly reality, believe the mystery is reality. John knows the earthly reality, the seven churches, and he are struggling and suffering. He knows they're weak. He now knows the heavenly reality of the sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, God over everything, prophet, priest, and King Jesus is anything but weak, and now he's called to believe the mystery that that sovereign King is with you, John, right in the midst of your suffering and struggling. He's present. He's touched you, and he's powerful. It's with his right hand, John, the hand of his power. In the midst of your... Here's the mystery. In the midst 
of your suffering and struggling. The sovereign Savior is present and powerful. Believe that mystery is reality. He's laid his right hand upon you, the hand of his power and authority to assure you he's with you, and he commands you to believe this. Fear not. Look around you, John. Does anything look frightening set next to this Jesus, the Jesus? Does Rome look frightening set next to the Jesus? Do they look sovereign set next to him? John, they may have exiled you to this island, but even Jesus is sovereign over that. He is not there on account of the word of Rome. Look back up to verse 9. He recognizes that and sees that. He is there on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is able to see that this mystery is reality. He is able to see, this is also in verse 9, he is able to see that yes, he may be facing tribulation, but that is because he is also a part of a current, present kingdom. You go back up to verse 5, and he said that Christ is ruling and reigning now, king over all the rulers of the earth. You go to verse 6, he says right now, we as his people, we are a present kingdom. Right here, right now. And that's why he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom together right here right now here's the reality that i have seen unveiled from heaven christ is ruling and reigning as king and he is providing every ounce of power for patient endurance i'm your brother and partner in the tribulation the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in jesus so fear not john This is the reality in which we live. This is the reality of the church age, the reality of the last days. It's a reality that we live in a kingdom that is already and not yet, that yes, we experience tribulation and we experience the kingdom right here, right now. That yes, we are weak and we are suffering and we struggle and Christ is sovereign and is the Savior and he is present with us to empower us. The truth is all over the New Testament. Acts 14 and verse 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom, tribulation, together. 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to live a godly life, a kingdom life? You will be persecuted. Kingdom, tribulation, together. Did not Jesus himself say this? In John's own gospel, John 16 and verse 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world, conquered it already. I am enthroned as king and you are a part of my kingdom. John, this is the mystery that is reality. Even though Rome can exile you, persecute you, and even kill you, fear not, John. Even if they kill you, fear not, because, here's why, verse 17, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Fear not, John, I'm God. That's what Jesus means when he calls himself the first and the last. That's a phrase straight out of Isaiah. Isaiah 44 and verse six, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Jesus says, fear not, John, I'm God, king over everything. 
And as your high priest, I have made the ultimate sacrifice of my own life. Is that not what he says? I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. So hear this prophetic word, John, from your prophet, priest, and king. I have the keys of death and Hades. I've conquered death itself, and I have the keys that determine who gets locked up in its grip and who gets liberated from its grasp. Rome doesn't have the keys to death. I do. So fear not. No matter how weak you may feel, believe this mystery is reality. I'm the sovereign king over everything. I'm present and empowering you amidst your suffering and struggling. Where is Jesus, Shades? Where is Christ the conqueror when we suffer and we struggle? Right there, amidst it all, present and providing power. That's the mystery being unveiled at the beginning of Revelation. We talked about this last week. Revelation gives us heaven's perspective on our present and in light of the future. And it's giving that perspective right now. John, I know what this looks like. I know the sound that surrounds you in this earth, the sound of suffering and struggling. Here's the reality of who I am and what I'm doing. Believe that mystery is reality. This is the mystery being unveiled at the beginning of Revelation. This is the heavenly perspective we we are meant to see. That amidst our struggling and suffering, amidst tribulation the kingdom and the king are present and powerfully at work precisely where we feel weak that's what jesus has shown john and that's what jesus wants to show his church us i know that because that's how he started remember what the voice said behind john right To my churches, John, write what you see. Now he repeats that command. Verse 19. Write, therefore. Therefore. In other words, John, because I'm the first and the last, because I am the living one, because I died and am alive forevermore, because I hold the death of keys, uh, the, the, the keys of death and Haiti, because of all of that, not only do I command you to fear not, but I command you to write. Write to my churches so that they won't fear. Write, John. Verse 19, write the things that you have seen. That's a repetition of that initial command back up from, from back up in verse 11. Write what you see. Put it in a book. Send it to the seven churches. What will John see? What is it that he needs to write? Verse 19 tells us, write therefore the things that you have seen, namely, there's a Greek word that's not translated in most English translations right there, and it should be, namely, write what you see. Here's what that's going to be. Namely, those that are and those that are to take place after this. John, write about the things that are. John, write. I've got things to say about what is going on in each of my churches right now at this very moment. We're going to read that primarily in chapters 2 and 3. But then, in chapter 4 and verse 1, John's going to be invited to come up to heaven to get a heavenly perspective and see the things that must take place after this. To get heaven's perspective on what is going to be unfolding for these seven churches and for all Christ's churches through the last days, through all of the church age. That's what we're going to see from chapter 4 on. We're going to see heaven's perspective on life 
that these first century churches will face and heaven's perspective on the life that the church in every generation will face and how we are to live in light of how all those things will end. This is what you're to write to these churches, John, because I want them to know. I want them to to see. This is how we see shades through the word. This is how we see what John saw. Write to them. I want them to know right now and through whatever they face in the future that I, Christ the conquer, conqueror, am with them to empower their conquering. I think that's how he ends. Look at verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll get into the seven stars that are the seven angels of the churches next week. Right now, just hear the last thing that Jesus said. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Is it an accident at all that the last thing that Jesus says right here explains the first thing that John had seen. Verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. John heard a command to write to seven churches. John sees seven golden lampstands. I told you this is going to happen over and over again throughout Revelation. John will hear one thing and then see another, and yet they are the same thing revealing some great mystery. In chapter 5, John's going to hear about a lion, and he's going to see a lamb, and they are one and the same. In chapter 6, he's going to hear about an army of 144,000, and he's going to see an innumerable multitude of martyrs, and they are one and the same. And right here in chapter 1, he hears of seven churches suffering, struggling, impoverished, weak. We heard this earthly reality, and yet he sees seven golden lampstands in the presence of an all-powerful priest of infinite riches and wealth and strength we saw this heavenly heavenly reality shades do you believe the mystery that what we heard and what we saw are the same thing do do you believe the mystery is reality those seven weak churches are the seven golden lampstands of christ god himself the all-powerful prophet priest and king is in the midst of their suffering and struggling he is present to work his power through them this is a great mystery being revealed when, when, John, when Jesus says to John, this is the mystery of the seven stars and seven churches, yes, on a surface level, he's talking about here's what those symbols point to. But the word mystery packs a much larger punch than that biblically. The word mystery means here is something that has been hidden from ages past that is being made known now. Here's the mystery of the seven golden lampstands, John. They are my people, the church. I think that this is a, re- a reference straight back to Zechariah chapter 4. Hang with me for just a second, Shades. This is so beautiful. In, second, in Zechariah chapter 4, the prophet Zechariah is given a vision of a lampstand with seven flames alight. 
And this lampstand, it's flanked by two olive trees, constantly supplying oil through two servant branches. And what we come to learn is that this lampstand, it represents the people of God being empowered by God's own spirit. The oil that's flowing from these olive trees to these flames, that's the empowerment of the spirit of God. And they are being empowered to do something, to rebuild God's temple. And that spirit's empowerment of that work is going to come through two branches. Those two branches, they are two branch-like servants. Zerubbabel, the rightful king from David's line, even though he can't be king at that time, he's governor, but he is the rightful king from David's line. And the other branch is Joshua, the high priest. See this picture. Through my rightful king, my high priest, will flow the Holy Spirit power of God to empower my church, these lamps, these lights in the world, to rebuild my temple. And he declares the central point right in the middle of the passage, Zechariah 4 and verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And here, In Revelation 1, we've got lampstands that stand for the people of God. Empowered by the Spirit of God. I know that because we're going to figure out where their lights are when we get to chapter 4. You notice these are just lampstands. There's no torches of flame on them. That's because when you get to Revelation 4 and verse 5, we're going to read, Before the very throne of God were burning seven torches of fire. Without lampstands. Seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. The Holy Spirit in His fullness is the burning flame that lights the church on earth and puts out its light to the glory of God. We've got lampstands that represent the people of God. We've got the Spirit of God flowing to them to empower them. And what's He going to come through? The rightful ruler from David's line, the rightful king and the great high priest. But right here, it's not two branches, it's one branch. The branch from the stump of Jesse, the one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. And what is He empowering His church to do? To build His temple. Which Ephesians chapter 2 tells us is a new dwelling place for the very Spirit of God. It's made up of people from all tribes and all nations and all tongues. God gives us a picture here that He is taking these weak, suffering, struggling churches and through the Almighty Christ, He is presently empowering them by His Spirit to be His witnesses to the world. To shine a light that will point people to the ultimate light, the very glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ that shines like the sun in its full strength. God loves to use weak things to do this. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is not from us, but from Him. 1 Corinthians 26 through verse 28. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. Foolish seven churches. Struggling, suffering ones. Weak ones. He chose what is foolish in the world in order to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. The all-powerful prophet, priest, and king is in the midst of his suffering, struggling people present to work his power through them. Through you, Shades Valley. Our great High priest, 
is in the midst, in our midst, to tend this lampstand that we call Shades Valley Community Church. He's present to comfort us when we suffer, to challenge us when we struggle, to convict us when we sin. He's present and powerfully at work that we might be a light pointing others to the ultimate light of his face that outshines the sun. This is the mystery that is reality. Do you believe it? Or is it drowned out by the sound of the earthly reality that surrounds you? Are you only able to hear the sound of your suffering and struggling? Revelation unveils a heavenly reality that you must see so that you may believe this mystery is reality. The Jesus. The one and only Jesus. God over everything, prophet, priest, and king. He is present, and he is powerfully working. As I stood in the principal's office on that day, trembling, I was beckoned over to her desk. She examined my finger and the bite marks, and then she began to speak to the little girl who had bitten me. And as she spoke, I began to see a new reality. I was not here to be punished. I was here to be protected. My principal was present with me, and every bit of her power was for me. And in my suffering, struggling situation, I no longer felt weak, but like I could conquer anything. Shades in an infinitely greater way, no matter what suffering or struggling situation you find yourself in, no matter what personal island of Patmos you're on, or no matter which of the seven churches that we most collectively resemble, believe this mystery is reality. The Jesus, the one we've seen in Revelation 1, unveiled in glory and power, the Jesus is present with you, and his power is for. That is where Christ, the conqueror, is. In the very midst of our suffering and struggles to shine forth his glory.